Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Andrew Argent, who is the medical director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Red Cross War Memorial Children's Hospital in Cape Town, South Africa. He is professor of pediatrics at the University of Cape Town. He's going to be talking about his paper, Pediatric Intensive Care in South Africa, Making Optimum Use of Limited Resources at the Red Cross War Memorial Children's Hospital, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2014. Thank you for joining us today, Andrew. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Pediatric intensive care unit resources often are not sufficient to meet the need for these services, especially in countries with more limited health care resources. The issue of how to use these resources most wisely is a difficult one. Um, Would you describe for us what your hospital setting is and your resources? In many ways, the hospital I work at, the Red Cross Children's Hospital, is a little unique in the world in the context of pediatric critical care because as far back as 1957, Pat Smythe started ventilating neonates with tetanus at this hospital. And so we have a history of pediatric intensive care that extends back a long time. At the same time, we are a middle-income country with an annual per capita healthcare expenditure of about $120, which is substantially less than would be the case in the U.S., but is a lot more than in many other parts of the country. And we have a strange combination of access to high-technology to ventilators, to high-frequency oscillatory ventilators, and the technology to do advanced cardiac surgery. But at the same time, we've been exposed to a mass of infectious diseases, problems such as tuberculosis, and recently the whole experience of the HIV epidemic that has affected us deeply. And so we, in a situation of high need, high morbidity and mortality for children, but with perhaps a unique access to a history of intensive care and resources that enable us to do reasonably high technology services. So that's something about where we are. I think the specifics that this paper addressed was that over the last couple of decades, there's been a sharp rise in the population in the Western Cape, particularly in the pediatric population, and there's been some reduction of the funding that's available for high-tech tech or highly expensive pediatric services, and so we were caught in the tension of trying to provide services for an increasing demand in the context of limitation of the resources available. In some ways unique, but I think something that's common to people across the world. I think you're right about that. And the the issue of how does one best use limited resources, while certainly we have many more resources than you do, we still come up against this issue. So what led you to this paper that you wrote describing your development of a policy for PICU admissions? Well, I think that we find ourselves as intensive care physicians 
under ever-increasing pressure of trying to make decisions as to which children took priority. And as in many parts of the world, we realized there was a complexity and how do you make rational decisions between children in, with acute illness and acute indications for ICU demand, admission versus the needs of children who need major surgery. And one of the particular things about pediatrics is that while surgery may be relatively elective, it really is truly elective, and children are compromised if they don't have their surgery done at appropriate times. And so we found ourselves in this ever-increasing pressure of how to decide which children should have access to beds um, when we didn't actually have enough beds to accommodate everyone who had a reasonable call. And we had to find a way of dealing with the pressures from our colleagues in different specialities and from different disciplines who were all arguing appropriately for the needs of their patients. Um, I think the underlying thing was that we felt that at least if we could carefully and thoughtfully develop principles for how things should be done and bring everyone to a sense of understanding of how we were trying to do things, it would decrease the pressure on people during the acute phase of when you faced with a sick child. And that was some of the background of why we tried to develop a policy for admission. This is not an easy policy to uh, develop and probably even more difficult to implement. How did you approach developing such a policy? Well, I think there were a number of aspects about the approach. Um, I think underlying it was a wish to make explicit to people around us and in our community exactly what it is that we were trying to do and how we were trying to do it and on what basis we were trying to do it. In setting about the policy, we decided that we needed to lay out what we were doing, discuss those deeply with everyone that had a, a reasonable stake in, in what those decisions should be, and then together with them come to an agreement of what certainly everyone in the hospital would accept was a reasonable approach. I think underlying that was a sense that probably not everyone would agree with every decision, but if everyone could agree that that was a reasonable and a fair approach, we felt that that would go a long way to enabling us to do things more appropriately at all times and be more consistent in our approach. So was this policy primarily developed by the critical care staff, or was it collaborative with all of your various stakeholders, your surgeons, your infectious disease people, all the other people who have patients who need your services? In some ways, the PICU team were the people who did most of the writing and most of the documentation. But we, over a period of several months, we met at least every two weeks 
with the wider group of people, all the physicians, the nurses, administrators and managers. We've met with the surgeons, cardiothoracic surgeons, some of the physicians from referring hospitals. And with all those people together, we tried to move to a consensus. And I think the process that we used in that was to actually first spell out the principles as to what we believed would be the principles that should underlie principles for admission. And then once we'd spelt out what those principles should be, to talk about the actual implementation of of those principles. And then finally, once we'd got agreement from everyone that that was reasonable, we went through a process of signing off with hospital management and then taking on to the provincial health authorities and the political leaders of the province the information to explain to them this is what we were doing and the reasons for what we were doing. So that at many levels, um, and certainly the people who had authority about, over health policy would understand what it is that we were trying to do and why. And so that, that, I think, was the process that we embarked on. And once we'd developed some policies, there was actually an iterative process of, from time to time, meeting with people and getting feedback as to whether, in fact, they thought that what we were doing was reasonable. And, of course, on over individual cases, there was, on a number of occasions, debate, particularly from the physicians involved, as to whether this was logical, reasonable, and how this actually applied to the specific patient. So the process started out, had a period of intense activity, but in a sense kept developing over a period of years. What principles did you use to guide the development of this policy? Well, we tried to lay those principles out. Um, some of those were the first one that we were always trying to act in the best interests of the child and that the child should be the focus of the attention. Of course, that's a difficult concept as to what is the best interest of a child, but certainly we wanted to be sure that a child would benefit from ICU admission, that we would not risk increasing the suffering of a child, and that wherever possible, the child would be given the benefit of the doubt. We also had to have some sense that there was equitable access to intensive care, and that referred to people from different parts of the country, from different specialities, different hospitals. And we felt that it was, would be unfair if children from a specific region in our healthcare district got priority over others. So there needed to be equity in the process. We did want to extract, as it were, the best bang for our buck. In other words, we wanted to provide ICU to children who were most likely to benefit. And sometimes that meant looking at not just the short-term benefit, but what benefit they would gain from that admission when seen from the perspective of several months. We needed to be sure that we'd got the optimal processes in place to assess the child and get all the relevant information. And intention with the needs of the children and the referring services, we also needed to balance it with the needs of the staff because if we 
worked our staff too hard and caused too much burnout of our existing staff, that would actually even further reduce the resource. Um, one of the particular areas that we needed to address was the issue of children who required major elective surgery because very often they they get bumped off the list because of acute emergencies. And whereas if that happens occasionally, it may be acceptable. If it happens consistently, we end up in a situation where those children also don't have equitable access to intensive care. And we were very aware that cancellation of elective surgery has implications for the child, it has implications for the family, it has implications for utilization of other hospital resources. And in our context, it also means that if surgeons and anesthetists can't actually get to do their work, that in time leads to a reduction of that skill and that service in, in the country. And if you don't give surgeons and anesthetists the opportunity, you end up losing them. So we had to balance the needs of the immediate service, the immediate children and staff, with the future development of skills and resources for the country. So those were some of the principles that we were making explicit um, and then trying to carry through into sort of real criteria. So how did you develop criteria for uh, who has priority for PICU admission or what, what are your criteria for refusal of admission to the PICU, which is probably one of the most difficult things that you likely have to face? Well, some of the things we looked at, I mean, the first thing we said is that if we felt that children were too well to benefit from PICU admission, then we wouldn't start. At the other extreme, we felt that there might be categories of children where, in a sense, admission to intensive care might be futile. And the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health from the UK has actually spelt out some criteria um, where they believe that, for instance, care might be futile, and that might be the case of a child who's been brain dead or a child who has suffered extreme brain injury. They raised the issue of children who have underlying lethal conditions where you might be able to treat the acute emergency adequately, but the likelihood is that they will die within a short space of time from, for the underlying problem. We also brought in the category of children poor outcomes in our current situation. And for us, at the time that we developed that, for instance, children who had HIV infection at a time when antiretroviral therapy was not available, we discovered that these children, although the ICU mortality was only of the order of about 35 to 40%, the vast majority of these children died within six months because of the lack of therapy. And so at the time, we felt that it was not appropriate to admit those children. In our setting, we've had extremely bad outcomes with children with established kwashiorkor who developed septic shock and children with severe metabolic disorders, for instance, where we don't have treatment programs. We felt that they couldn't be offered reasonable long-term therapy. So those were some of the categories where we felt that it was reasonable to say that those children 
should not be admitted to ICU primarily because they would use many resources without a benefit to them and to the community that they were in. So those were the, the major criteria that, that, that we looked at as for children who should not be admitted to ICU. Mm-hmm. You mentioned this was an iterative process. How have you revised your policies over the time? Well, I think, for instance, the policies regarding HIV therapy and patients with HIV infection are a very good example because when we started this program in the early 2000s, as I mentioned, these children did not have access to antiretroviral therapy and they had a poor prognosis seen over a period of months to years. With the advent of antiretroviral therapy, their prognosis started improving and at the same time, in fact, we did admit some children with HIV because at the time that they presented with acute illness, we didn't have a final diagnosis. And that meant that we spent a lot of time thinking about how best to manage these children. And over time, the mortality on those children has come down progressively to the extent that the current mortality for children in early childhood admitted with severe HIV infection and related problems is probably less than 15%. And whereas in the past, those children would have died within months, they now survive. And we've changed our approach to therapy as to when we use ARVs, what antimicrobial therapy is initiated in ICU. And so over a period of 10 years, the mortalities dropped dramatically, and we no longer exclude children with HIV infection because it would be inappropriate to do so. But it may have been different when we started. Mm-hmm. What challenges did you face in implementing these guidelines? Look, I think the first thing was the whole process of just sitting down and making it explicit and getting agreement from everyone that this was a reasonable way to go. Um, I think once we'd gone through that process, it was relatively easy to disseminate the information to people within the hospital and to people who were referring patients to the ICU from outside the hospital. One of the challenges is that in a teaching hospital complex, there's a fairly rapid turnover of particularly junior staff, and it's been quite difficult to make sure that all staff in emergency areas and throughout the hospital are actually up to date with what the policy is. From the consultant point of view, or what I think you would call the attendings, it's still difficult to be absolutely consistent in application of the policy because of the individual child that comes in front of us. And we discovered over time that as individuals, we were not utterly consistent all the time. We vary in, in just how we perceive things from day to day. And there were differences between consultants as to how we prioritize certain issues. So I don't think we were totally consistent at all times. Um, I think the other big challenge for us is that if you're in a context where if you are at all worried about a child, you can put them into ICU, 
your probability of excluding a child inappropriately is quite low. But when you're faced with only being able to admit them to the ICU when they're extremely sick, one of the consequences is that if you make mistakes, you will lose some children. And I think all of us had the experience that working close to the margins of severity of illness meant that we got some decisions wrong. Um, it's also one thing to talk about what the policy is. It's also a different experience to explain to a mother that you are not going to admit their child to ICU because of this policy. Um, and, and I think all of us found that extremely challenging. I would certainly think so. Were there changes in the care on the general wards that over the period of time that you've been using this policy um, that influenced the need for PICU beds? Well, I mean, over the period of the policy, there has been an increase in the population in the Western Cape, which in a sense brought more patients into our area. One of the things that's changed dramatically, as I've mentioned, is the availability of antiretroviral therapy and everything that goes with that. And one of the more recent things that has changed dramatically is the use of non-invasive ventilatory support, such as CPAP and high-flow nasal oxygen. And we have increasingly been using that sort of ventilatory support for children outside of the ICU. I'm still not entirely comfortable that that's safe to do, but the reality is that there are many children now who are successfully treated with that sort of non-invasive ventilation in what we call high care areas, but actually have very limited nursing and staffing resources available. And that, in a sense, has been successful in that many children have been successfully treated that way. Um, overall, over the period, the mortality in the ICU and the mortality in the wards has actually decreased. Um, so we felt that there was some evidence that we were not adversely affecting too many children. It sounds like if the mortality on the floor is decreasing along with that in the ICU, that you, in fact, are generally making pretty good decisions and not turning down a lot of children who are then dying who might not otherwise have done so. I think that's a fair comment, and I think the other thing although it's sometimes been difficult to track it, is that we have been able to maintain, at least maintain, and in some cases increase the turnover of some of the major surgical disciplines, um, which has meant that more children have actually had access to the resource when they wouldn't have. Um, over the last few years, we have been able to get some more resources into the ICU. And so where our bed numbers dipped down to as low as 16 beds in the ICU, we, we are back up to 20 beds and occasionally going up to 22 beds available. And so that has also helped us. I think the other thing is that it becomes very much easier to argue for resources with healthcare and policy developers if you can honestly show that you have done your utmost to make effective use of the resources available. And so I think that is perhaps another offshoot of this system. You talked a little bit about the tension in caring for the individual child while trying to 
make good use of your resources. And the the surgical patients often have a very rapid turnover, but some patients, perhaps the HIV patients, perhaps some other trauma patients or other, may have relatively long stays. Do you consider... Uh, the sort of long-stay PICU patients and and how you manage your uh, resources, and how does that play in? The particular policy that we've described was primarily an admission policy, but you're absolutely correct in that long-stay patients take up a disproportionately large proportion of ICU resources. There are many ways that you might choose to define long-stay, but it would appear that you know, patients who spend longer periods in the ICU are a minority of the ICU population, but end up being there a long time. There's a complexity in that, because I don't think any of us would dream of refusing admission to a child with Guillain-Barre syndrome who's likely to be there for a long time as they've ventilated and supported. But there are many other children where it's actually quite difficult to predict at the start of the admission how long they will stay there. One of the things that did actually happen early on, again with the HIV infection patients, was that we would put a limit on how long we were prepared to carry on with ventilation. And some of that was based on the fact that in that setting, the longer the patient was ventilated, the less the chance that they would survive. more recently, we've done that less and less, and at the moment, we have actually been trying to undertake some studies to try and understand if there's any way if we can predict which patients are likely to spend a long time in the ICU. Perhaps the one other factor regarding long-stay patients that is relevant is that the hospital has developed a home ventilation service, which offers some children and out from the intensive care, even if they require some ongoing ventilatory support. And I think that service in our hospital is different to what may happen in many other countries because in some cases, well, in all cases, the parents are taking their children home with no additional nursing support. And in some cases, they're going to fairly poor socioeconomic situations but parents have done an extraordinary job in looking after children in those circumstances. And so that's also helped a little bit to deal with the problem of long stayers and how we meet their needs as well. Do you have suggestions for other institutions or other uh, regions that might be considering developing a policy like this? My guess is that you need to develop solutions that are specific to your area. Um, But in in thinking about what we've done and reading around that, I'm really struck by some of the suggestions that have come from the Accountability for Reasonableness program that I think developed in Canada, where if you go through a process of being explicit about policies as opposed to sort of doing things without being explicit to them and actually providing the rationale for why you're choosing to do that, it actually opens up the debate. I think it's incredibly useful if people around you understand why you're doing things 
and it also frees up the debate if people feel they have a right to challenge it and bring other information or challenge your conclusions. And I think that's a very healthy process. Of course, one of the provisors of doing that is that when you come to implement it, you have to do your best to be consistent and make sure that certain people don't have different rules applied to them because of their connections or other factors. And I think those principles of, of being explicit, providing rationale, being open to discussion, and then actually applying things consistently open up the door to actually dealing with many of the difficult issues that I think intensivists across the world are faced with. Uh, I think you have just done an incredible job of putting this together, and I appreciate that you have taken the time to talk with us uh, about what you did. It's really quite a major accomplishment, I think. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? Well, Margaret, thank you very much for talking to me. I mean, it's been a real pleasure to talk about it. I think from my perspective, it's really been a an ongoing learning experience for us. Um, and I'm quite sure that as the needs of health services, as medicine develop and as change happens around us, we constantly going to have to be looking at these ideas, working with them, and fine-tuning them to make sure that we're staying appropriate to our context and our needs. But I'm intrigued as I talk to people across the world as to how many people are grappling with this, and I think that's a, an excellent development. Well, thank you very much, Andrew, for talking with us today. We have been talking with Dr. Andrew Argent, discussing the article, Pediatric Intensive Care in South Africa, an account of making optimum use of limited resources at the Red Cross War Memorial Children's Hospital. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care podcasts. Dr. Parker is Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former President of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.